you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 7 or open up an app on a mobile device and get there. We are going to walk directly through Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. Let me tell you something about Bibles. If you're in this room and you do not have a Bible, we uh, more than anything... More than any other gift, want to get the Bible in your hands. So if you don't have a Bible, walk straight out these doors after the service into the commons to the back side of the commons, which would be the west side of the commons. There's a bookstore. We will hand you a copy of the scriptures for free. So make sure you grab one of those. Uh, For all of us, again, open to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. One of the most famous passages of the Bible One of the most well-known phrases in all the Bible, yet most misunderstood. Judge not. So let's read. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray some of the lyrics of one of the songs we sang. Um, God, whether we have a claim or whether we're in pain, let it be Jesus. God, we have nothing uh, to stand on this morning, not everyone who's sitting in this room or me who's sitting on a stage other than Jesus. So I pray that you would make yourself clear to us this morning. Uh, God, there's a lot of us that are foggy and hazy when it comes to our seeing you. And so, God, I pray that you would bring clarity to who you are. For some of us in this room, uh, we would admit we don't know you. And uh, I pray that you would make yourself known, that you would make yourself clear, that you would make your words be louder um, and more easy to understand than any other words. God, we want to know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was a contemporary a bit older um, than C.S. Lewis, a guy named G.K. Chesterton. Actually, how many of you in this room have ever heard the name G.K. Chesterton? So, some of you. Uh, He's worth looking into and worth reading. He has a phrase I think upon often, and he said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Leave that up there for a minute. Everybody in this room has had moments, whether you would call yourself a Christian or you wouldn't, where you would say, yeah, I've tried to live out this Jesus thing. It didn't work. He didn't deliver, or it felt like he didn't deliver. And too many of us, I would argue, including myself, quit. What Chesterton would say, in fact, is you never actually tried Christianity. You actually found it difficult and stopped, and never in the end pressed in, took Jesus' words at what they were, his words to be applied, and you said, oh, that's okay. Or far too many of us have been what James says in his letter in the New Testament. We've been just hearers of the word and not doers. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, this beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the best sermon that's ever been delivered, is meant to be applied. 
That's why at the very end of it, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, and look at it, does them, other versions say put them into practice, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock in comparison to the person who builds their house on the sand. For when the storms come and the winds come, the one who builds their house on sand, their house goes away. The one who builds it on the rock, it stands firm. So Jesus is establishing his words as those which provide us and our world a firm, solid foundation if they're practiced. Not just if they're heard, but if they're practiced. So on that note, let's move in to today's passage, which has to do with do not judge. Here's what you're going to see as you walk through these five verses, or what I want us to look at, is that Jesus is saying we must take notice of the standard we use in evaluating other people. Take notice, like, Take attentive notice to the standard you're using. One. Secondly, we must take notice of what we notice in other people. So take notice of our standard, take notice of what we notice, and then take notice of the order in which we evaluate. Namely, what's the first thing we do when we're evaluating other people? you got to know this, Jesus talks all the time, and the Bible talks all the time, not about a fairy tale distant spiritual land, but always about the here and the now. You show if you believe Jesus by what you put into practice now. We show as a culture on whether or not we take Jesus' word seriously by what we actually do in the here and the now. It's not a distant fairy tale land. It's about now. He is deeply concerned with how we relate to one another as individuals, as families, as churches, as communities, as humanity. He's deeply concerned with you could call the social fabric, how we relate to each other. On that note, he says, don't judge. Don't judge lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Here's what Jesus is saying about take notice of your standard. He's saying the standard that you used will be used upon you. You evaluate other people through a microscope. Your evaluation will turn from a microscope into a mirror. Right? Microscopes feel more comfortable than mirrors, don't they? Evaluating something else is always easier and more comfortable than evaluating yourself. He's saying the standard that you use will be used upon you. My wife, uh, we are the parents of four children, and she likes to say, I was the best parent in the world before I was a parent. And she'll use as an example that when you would go out on the town and you'd see these people who had their children, not their dogs, their children on leashes, and she would go, how bad of a parent do you have to be to put your kid on a leash? And now, after she's the mother of four children, she says, give me eight of them, two for each of them. Like, I'll put one on their neck and one on their waist, right? 
because we go to the grocery store, they're gone. Like we walk out into our neighborhood, they're around the corner. It's, it's, and we feel like we're doing the best we can, but we can't corral them. But she realizes it's amazing how smart I was, how great of a mother I was, how easy it was for me to evaluate other moms and other dads before I was a mom or before I was a dad. This is Jesus' warning to us, is you better realize how easy that is. So as we work through these first two verses, it starts off and says, judge not. We have to ask ourselves the question and answer the question, what is judgment? What isn't it? What is it not? And what is it? So let's just start off. What judging is not in this passage? Judging is not moral discernment or moral assessment. Here's why I know it's not that. Because Jesus himself is making moral assessments, moral evaluations. He's morally discerning all the time and he's telling us to do the same thing. There's over 1,000 commands, meaning do this or don't do that or both in just the New Testament. If you took the whole Bible, it's chock full of ways that we would live righteously, which means there's ways to live unrighteously. He's leading his disciples over and over and over and then teaching them, today is a moral assessment. Don't judge. That's a command. Lest you be judged. So it's clearly not the ability to morally assess something. If you want to go on in the New Testament, he tells the church to one another to speak truth to one another in love, which means there's ways to speak falsely to one another. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's a provocative passage, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This means a real friend is one who's willing to call a spade a spade who's willing to say you're going down the wrong path and you're going to hurt yourself and hurt other people. That's a faithful friend, which means there's a moral discernment and a moral assessment and a moral exhortation, telling somebody what's right and what's wrong. So judging is not that. And here's why it's so important to say this up front. Our culture, even people who are not Christians and those who are Christians, when we are morally discerning, or when we make a moral assessment based upon the word of God, we'll say, well, your Bible says don't judge. Folks, that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not. It's not. If we are going to be a people who love God and love our neighbor, we must, we must morally discern things, morally assess things, and speak out the truth in love. We must. So it's not that. It's not a advocating a lack of moral discernment or assessment or application. What it is, is personal condemnation in such a way that's proud and is arrogant. It is a moral assessment with the wrong motives. It is, in fact, a moral discernment that, in fact, is not that discerning at all. Because it doesn't go deep enough and it doesn't go wide enough. And namely, it doesn't assess and discern itself. 
That's what he means here by do not judge. It's fundamentally a human being taking the seat of God himself. It's a, that's a problem if you didn't realize this. A human being taking the seat of God is a problem. Why? Because they're a human being. It's taking the seat of God. John Calvin said, do not judge, is the tendency to become overly curious about the sins of others. You could say it this way. It's the tendency to become experts in other people's sins. To be overly curious about the sins of others. That's judgment. Now let me tell you something and warn you. We are, we are, and I hope even more so in the future, a Bible church. We believe that the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is the truth for the whole world. We believe it's the true story of the whole world. Not just for us, not just for our community, not just for our private faith, but for the whole world. We're a Bible church. But let me tell you something about the Bible. There is a strong tendency for those who know the Bible more to sit in the seat of judgment as though they are God. There have been studies done for those who know the Bible the most, pastors and scholars, that when they read a passage in the Bible, they almost always put themselves in the place of the righteous person or of God and Jesus. Let me just say something. That's a problem. Where other people that don't know the Bible as well tend to put themselves in the place of the sinners or of the unrighteous. Whether or not that's true or not, Paul tells the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There is a tendency, if you know the Bible more, not even, most of you are not pastors or scholars, but some of you know the Bible more. There is a tendency in you to think you're righteous on the basis of your knowledge. On the basis of you coming to church and having been in Bible studies and being able to assess it. The Bible says actually your righteousness comes from putting these things into practice. And love is the fundamental word and ethic of the Bible that you're putting these things into practice. The people at the time of Jesus' day who knew the scriptures the most were the ones he criticized the most. The ones he called hypocrites the most. So there is that tendency. Realize that. And we'll get into why that tendency is there. But the, those who are most familiar with the Bible are tempted to think that they are God. James 4, 11 and 12 talks about this very same warning. Now let me tell you this about James. James was the brother of Jesus. So he kind of knew Jesus pretty well, right? He takes up this theme and he says specifically in verses 11 through 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother, you could say her sister, or judges his brother or sister, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you aren't a doer of the law, you're a judge. What's he saying? There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Here's what he's saying. God's the judge. Don't put yourself in the position of God. Now let me make a side point that's very important. The church, Paul says, is to evaluate each other on an ongoing basis. But from a fundamental 
healthy place of knowing you are a sinner in need as well, which we're going to get into. So this isn't saying, again, don't make a moral assessment or a moral evaluation. It's saying don't put yourself in the position of God. Don't put yourself in the position of God. Judging is assuming the posture of God and forgetting that you are a broken human. Let me say that again. Judging in this passage is taking on the posture of God and forgetting that you are a dependent, poor, broken sinner. That's fundamentally the problem. So he says, judge not that you may be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So now he's beginning to get into, he's building out his warning here. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Okay. So if you think about a measure in that time, we would think about like measuring cups now, but there were measurements and there's a standard. If you think about a weights and measurements, you set a standard and then it weighs something. The standard that you used will be used upon you in two ways. The standard that you use to judge other people, I promise you, think about your family or your close friends or your roommates. The standard you use to evaluate them, they will in turn come back and evaluate you by the same standard and oftentimes go, you are such a hypocrite. You told me to do this and you didn't do it. You told me to not leave dishes in the sink, yet you leave dishes in the sink. You told me to make sure I changed the toilet paper roll, yet you didn't change the toilet paper roll. You told me I stink, you stink worse. <laughs> right? That's just true. Like, you just look at life and you're like, wow, God's word is pretty true. But the other thing is, we will stand before God one day, who, to use the images Jesus is about to use in a minute, does not have a log in his eye. He's a perfect judge, and it'll be revealed. So understand this, God doesn't have a log in his eyes. He's not going to judge you in some way different. He's a perfect judge, right? But in the end, it will be revealed how you judged others. So think about the measurements you use to judge other people. Think just this week. And don't you dare say you didn't judge anybody this week because you are condemning yourself if you say that. Criticize, think about it that way. Condemning. People that you looked at and went, they're such a fool. Right? Which, by the way, in Matthew 5, he says, do not say in your heart about another person, you fool, raka, you idiot. There's a lot of presumption in those statements. So think about how you judge people this week and ask yourself some questions if you're willing to be measured in the same way that you measured them. So stop for a minute and think about that. How did you measure them? Did you measure them without concern for their world? Here's what I mean. You know these old adages that are cliches? I like to say cliches are cliches for a reason. Have you walked a mile in their shoes? Because we have a tendency to judge people just very neutrally, very flat, very one-dimensional, but we'll evaluate ourselves like 4D. Well, you don't understand all that's been going on. You don't understand how tired I am. That person that didn't get an email back to you, and they're so unprofessional. And yet the last time you forgot to return an email, did you evaluate, or did you go, oh, but I'm so busy? Are you willing to be measured the same way you measured them? When you watch the TV and you see people protesting in the streets, and you go, if they would just. Or did you think, like, what actually caused this? Are you really willing to be measured by the same standard you're evaluating them? Well, I didn't have anything. I made it for myself. And God says, or did you have a father 
who actually taught you the value of hard work and you're presuming upon that. Like, oh, everybody had that. Or were you actually born with some stuff and you knew where your clothes were coming from and how you could feed yourself? Do you presume upon the gifts God's given you, the Bible says? Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer to that biblically is what? Nothing. Okay, folks, say it loud. What is the answer to that? Nothing. And then Paul says, then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Why do you boast as though it's yours? Not just your stuff, but the very nature in which you live, the very jobs that you've had, the very schooling that you experienced. Are you willing to be judged the same way, presuming upon other people that everybody had it like you did? Folks, that's just not true. That's just not true. And if you sit in this world and you now judge other people because they're concerned by what they lose, right? you could be that very same person that hasn't had very much, and now you look at somebody that's losing something, and you go, oh, that's good. You had it all. You're actually concerned about that. You're still going to have more than I have. Do you know what it is to actually have experienced loss? Do you know that the turmoil that that puts in somebody? Do you know the concern that every human being has for their own safety, even if it's idolatrous? Are we really willing to be measured by the same measure in such a way that somebody may go, I'm going to look at you as though you didn't have all of these gifts that were given to you. How would you have acted? I'm going to judge you because you're judging that person who's doing something to feed their family. I'm going to judge you on the basis of what you would have done had you had nothing and you were reading the passage in the Bible, it says, if I don't care for my own family, I'm worse than an unbeliever. I'll judge you on that basis. Because you're sitting in a position where you can feed your family, where you can do that. Are we willing to measure ourselves by the same standards that we're measuring other people? Jesus says, be careful. Judge not, lest you be judged by the same measure. So let's do this. Let's slow down. Really, really slow down, apply the words of Jesus, because he's telling us to put it into practice, and look across at somebody's eyes and seek to get to know them, seek to listen to them, seek to understand their circumstance and situation. Secondly, which we're going to get to, you better remember your brokenness, your humanity. No, everyone has a story. He then goes on and he says makes a point to tell us this. You better notice attentively. Notice what you notice in your evaluation of other people. Here's what he says. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, if you don't see this, the people probably when Jesus said this, laughed hysterically. Because he's literally saying, you're noticing a speck in your neighbor's eye and there's a redwood forest in your eyes. Right? This will be like today, many of us who will go home, watch NFL football, lay back in our lazy boy with our guts hanging out of our shirt. We'll take chips and eat them and there'll be broken chips all over the front of our shirt. And we'll just keep eating them. 
in a vegetative state looking at the TV, eating these, and then we'll say, I need a bowl of ice cream, right? And one of our kids will come get a bowl of ice cream and we'll hand it to you, right? And then you'll eat ice cream and you'll have Hershey's chocolate on the side of your face. And then you will have the gall to say, we are so unathletic. Our guys are so slow. They can't even get to the quarterback, right? All the while your family looks at you like, you can't even get off the couch. <laughs> and you're worried about them getting to the quarterback? That's what Jesus is saying. You're concerned about the speck in their, own, their eye? You have a redwood forest in your eye. You're actually going to take up the task of evaluating their morality and you have a redwood forest in their, your, your eye? Really? It's meant to laugh at, but here's the thing. It's dangerously, dangerously serious. You could say it this way. It's deadly serious. He's not joking. He's saying it's deadly serious for the way in which our communities function together. It's deadly serious to the cohesion and unity of our churches. It's deadly serious to the cohesion of our families, to the bringing together of marriages, to the relationships of fathers to sons and sons to fathers and daughters to their fathers and fathers to their daughters and daughters to their mothers. It's deadly serious to you being a full human being that if you really want to experience life the way Jesus said to experience life, you better be overly cautious about pointing out the speck in other people's eyes and far more attentive to the log that's in your own. It's deadly, deadly serious. This begins to play out for us what judgment is and what it isn't again. You guys remember this story about David in 2 Samuel 12 verses 1 through 7? Remember this, because this is amazing about the Bible. David is called a man after God's own heart, and yes, he's also the man in the Bible whose sin may be known the most, right? David's sin with whom? Bathsheba. So he sins with Bathsheba, and then there's a moment <clears throat> where a friend of his comes to him, walks in the door and says, King David, yes, Nathan was his friend. King, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. So David's presuming, this is a real story, there's a rich man, there's a poor man. This rich man has all kinds of stuff, all kinds of cattle, all kinds of sheep. But this poor man only really had one thing he cared about. It was a little lamb. And this lamb, he literally nursed as a baby, began to bring it. The lamb went everywhere with him. <clears throat> one day, there were guests that came. The rich man saw the guests needed something to eat. He had all this stuff, but he looked over at the poor man's lamb, took the lamb, slaughtered it, killed it, cooked it, and served it to the guests. David goes nuts. Now, understand the context. David has just took Bathsheba, who was not his wife, who was the wife of another man, slept with her, then to cover his sin, took her husband and put her at the front lines of the army so that he would be murdered. So at this point, he's an adulterer and a murderer. He's now concerned about a man cooking a lamb. And he goes, that's it. Bring the man here. He deserves to die. Nathan, applying the proverb, being faithful to the wounds of a friend, says to David, you're the man. David breaks. But that's judgment. 
this moment of looking at a situation going, I would never do it, kill the man, kill the woman, get rid of those people, and going, uh, you have a redwood forest in your eyes. <laughs> really? You're that quick. You're that quick to come to resolution that dramatically affects those people. You're that quick to levy words, which the Bible say can throw forth a wildfire in our society. You're that quick to do that. If you're that quick to levy judgment like that, God's saying that's because you don't know the levity and the gravity of your own sin. You're blind. You're deceived. You're lost. That's what Jesus is saying. This is dangerously, dangerously serious. Do you know in the Bible, the Bible is very, very practical. You all know this is true. We said it before. It's always more comfortable to look through a microscope than it is to look in a mirror. It's always more comfortable to evaluate other people than to do self-evaluation. Right? That's just factual. You know the Bible says that sin is deceitful. It tells us that in the book of Hebrews in light of saying, make sure you have people around you. Don't forsake meeting with people that really care about you. Lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will always tell you somebody else is worse off than they may really be and you're better off. Well, then what should we do? Are people not in sin? No, they are. They absolutely are. But you better acknowledge first and foremost and be attentive and notice what you notice. Because you're noticing them, God's saying notice you. You're noticing them, God's saying notice you. Romans 2 talks about this very, very clearly as God's laying out the reality uh, before us that all have sinned. It says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Pause. Okay, when you make a judgment, slow down. Here's an application. Slow down. And ask yourself more than one dimensionally. Not just, I've never been on a street doing that. I never cheated there. But did you cheat somewhere else? I've never been that greedy. Have you ever been greedy? Right? Because he's saying, in fact, you judge and yet you do the same thing. He goes on. You do the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. So he's not denying that. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You position yourself in the place of God, ignoring your own sin. Do you not think then when you stand before God, that will be revealed? Obvious answer, it will, <laughs> right? It will. So why do we do that? Why is it so much easier for us to focus out there than focus on ourselves? My friend in Denver, who's a pastor, Jay Pathak, said this. One way to keep from focusing on your life which is everything Jesus is trying to do, drive to the heart, drive to the heart, drive to the heart. One way to keep from focusing on your own life is to constantly criticize others. So we could say it another way. The reason we constantly criticize others, the reason you constantly criticize others is because you desperately want to stay away from evaluating yourself because here's why. Deep down, you know you're that bad. But God's saying blessed life, the blessed life comes and starts with being poor in spirit. I know I'm needy. 
One of the greatest lies, the greatest lies of our generation and of sin in general is to say, you're fine. Everybody else is screwed up, but you're fine. The promise of the blessed life is to say, I'm not fine. This judgment is catastrophic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about judging others, judging others is the forbidden evaluation of other persons the problem is that it corrodes simple love. Folks, we live in a world that's upheld, the Bible says, by God. It holds together in God. You know what, want to know what else the Bible says about God? God is love. God intends his world to function in loving harmony. Above all these things, Paul says to the Colossians, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony judgment, our arrogant condemning, putting ourselves in a position of God, presuming we could never do that type judgment, corrodes simple love. You want to know what else it corrodes? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is essential to relationship in a sinful world because we all always are wronging each other. The reason we can't forgive is because we don't believe we need to be forgiven. That's catastrophically a problem. If you don't think you need to be forgiven, you won't be, the Bible says. Either by others or by God. It corrodes simple love and it corrodes forgiveness. Think about it this way. Imagine with me in your mind a person in your life that truth be told, don't try to be super spiritual here, be honest. That when all is said and done, you honestly despise them. Now, that's going to be hard because some of you are going to go, I wouldn't admit I despise anybody. So the person that in the end, if you went home and they were on your doorstep, you would be most disappointed. That person, for whatever reason. And there could be all kinds of reasons. Hear this, all kinds of reasons. Many of us sit in this room and the people we would not want to see the most are the ones who have wronged us in some of the most horrific ways that continue to affect your life, the kind of people that affected you in such a way that you can't close your eyes at night and not dream about it, the kind of people at night that you still have to gasp for air that you feel like, I now have an anxiety disorder because of it, the kind of people in your life that sucked all your money away, that you encountered the deepest, hardest problems in your life, that kind of person, okay? Now imagine you were given the opportunity to have that person standing right in front of you and you had two buttons, one button A and button B. And button A at that moment was a button that you could go, I could just do away with them. Like I'm not saying sadistic torture type stuff, but just gone, boom, gone, done. They're done, right? I could push that button. The second button is that this person actually changes, actually repents, actually can be reconciled to you because everything has been made right. Now be honest with yourself. Which button would you push? Because A is the judgment button. I don't have the right. I don't even know the whole story. I know what I experienced. I don't know all that got them there. And none of it condones their behavior. B is Jesus. Is the call of life in the sinful world for a community that is desperately passionate for reconciliation. B is the ministry given to the people of God that Paul says, we're ambassadors of Christ, the great reconciler, and he's given us the service, the ministry of reconciliation, imploring people 
imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God and in turn reconciled to each other. Let me tell you this. The only shot we have to get there is if we first, first focus on the log in our own eye. So this is where he goes and talks about how to put it in practice. He says, you, you people are focusing on the speck, not the log. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the obvious statement here. When you have a redwood forest in your eye and you don't acknowledge it, you don't see clearly. God forbid, if you don't start there, don't go talk to other people about what their problems are, right? But look at what he says, you hypocrite. First, this is the take notice of the order. Take notice of the order. First and always first, focus on your own sin. Remember John Calvin says judgment is becoming overly curious about another person's sin, becoming experts in their sin. Redemption Gilbert, and all who sit in here, whether you identify yourself with this congregation or not, here's what Jesus is saying. Become experts in your own sin, not in everybody else's sin. You ever thought about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, says, follow me as I follow Christ. But at the end of his life in 1 Timothy, he says, Jesus Christ whom saved us from our sin. Christ died for our sins, of whom I am the chief. Other versions, the worst. Okay, folks, you got to think about this for a minute. This is absolutely astounding. Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. At the end of his life, he travels through all of life. He has all this experience. He has more Bible knowledge than any of us. I mean, he wrote the stinking New Testament, right? He has way more biblical knowledge than all of us. He comes to the end of his life. He says, Christ Jesus, whom died for sinners, of whom I, not we, I am the worst. Paul, you have a self-esteem problem. No, 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 no. No, no, no. He had God set in rightful esteem, which put him in his rightful place. The reason Paul could carry out the ministry of reconciliation Reconciling people to people because he was reconciled to God is fundamentally because he first was always, not momentarily, always taking the log out of his own eye. Because he sat with God in confession and in repentance and he went, forgive me God, a sinner. It's all about self-awareness, folks. The only way you can be truly aware of other people to see them as God sees them, of human beings made in the image of God, to see them in the way God wants you to be a friend, even their problems, the speck in their eye. The only way you can be others aware is you've got to be radically self-aware. And he's not saying be so self-aware that you go into your room and you never talk to anybody about their problems or about their sin or about how they could change for the good. He says, no, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly so that you can be a faithful friend. You can faithfully wound your friend. And you can go and so, go, brother, sister, honey, friend, you've got this speck in your eye that's not allowing you to see the beauty of God's world and the beauty of your neighbor like you should. Can I help you take that out? Can I walk with you in this process? Because 
I've been there too. I'm there now. God is gracious. He is kind. It's his kindness that will lead us to repentance. And you're identifying with them. They're understanding you. And you are then walking with them as a friend. Folks, think about what the Bible says. Greater love has no one than this. Then they lay down their lives for their friends. God did that perfectly in Jesus, whom was sinless. He tells us to follow him, and yet we're sinners. What does that mean? We actually have to fall at the feet of the God who saves and say, save me daily, save me hourly, save me minute by minute, second by second. When you do that, and only when you do that, will you be able to rightfully extend the grace that God has shown to you to other people. Only then will you be able to rightfully extend the love that God has loved you. Only then will you rightfully be, be able to be the friend that God's calling us to be. So as we, as we close, here's what we're putting into practice. Let's be overly curious and experts in our own sin, knowing confidently we can approach the throne of grace with boldness because we have a God who saved us from that sin. You could have no more confidence to look and evaluate yourself in order to love your neighbor, in order to love God, because he did it, folks. He died on our behalf so that we might have the confidence to bring our sin before him, to have it forgiven every day, that then and only then we might fulfill the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. God, I pray and ask and first confess on behalf of us all, we are far more prone to see sin in others than we are to see sin in ourselves. And God, we confess to you that pride, that arrogant judgment, that idolatry, God. God, make us humble to come before you. Let us receive grace in our time of need. That God, when others are in need, day in and day out, we may display it in the strength that you supply and that you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.